Listener Production. Hi, I'm journalist and producer Chris Walker, and this is season two of my podcast, Brains Trust. What you're about to hear is some of Australia's most interesting, funny and complex people having what I am grandiosely calling a tapestry of conversation. I hope their reactions and responses to the reality of life in 2021 help you rethink, reassess and even reimagine your own year. The Brains Trustees this season include... G'day, my name's Tommy Little. My name's Jamila. I'm Charlie Pickering. I am Samantha Armitage. I am Rob Reed. You've got Tony Armstrong here. I'm Abby Chatfield and I am a god. Well, I started out on The Bachelor famously, you Did know... Did you say you're a god? No, I said, oh, god. <laughs> I said... And I am a god and that's it. I'm a bachelor, <laughs> a reality TV god. <laughs> Together, they are the ultimate dinner party conversation and we've saved you a seat at the table as we discuss the events, news and circumstances of our world from different perspectives. That is a really complex question. That's an interesting question. That's a really tricky question. Oh, hang on, let me think about how I felt about that. Today's episode is titled Fairness. We have all, at some point, repeated the bumper sticker slogan that life is unfair. And without doubt, the last two years have validated it. But if we were truly resigned to the reality of an unfair life, we wouldn't see people bravely seeking justice, finding opportunities for those who need help, and generally attempting to organise our society and our lives to level the playing field. But it must be said, we haven't done a great job. The playing field is not level. Men have it better than women, the able have it better than people with a disability, and white people have it better than pretty much everyone else. This year, like every other, unfairness reared its head in Canberra. Brittany Higgins, the young former Liberal staffer, bravely came forward with allegations of rape and sexual assault that occurred inside Parliament House. And for so long, it felt like the people around me only cared because of where it happened and what it might mean for them. Her story sparked a national conversation about a toxic workplace culture, systemic misogyny and victim blaming, both in political establishments and wider society. Sadly for many people who've worked in our nation's capital, this didn't come as a surprise. Samantha Armitage is one of them. I spent four years in Canberra and um, one of those in Parliament House, three of them at Wind TV. Um, so I did, I had seen the culture down there firsthand. I'd never seen anything like that, like obviously I'd think because I'm not the sort of person who would have um, been quiet about anything like that, but I, I didn't know it was that bad. Um but I'm not surprised, really, that, you know, that it, it was happening in there. And when I heard Brittany Higgins come out and say what she said, um, I was deeply horrified. I mean, I just can't, I, I, I take my hat off to her for being so brave um, because the, the, the culture in there was very much, you know, particularly when if you work in a political party, whichever side of the politics, you know, you uh, in there working your way up through that party. You don't rock the boat. You don't, you know, so so for her to do that was just extraordinary. You know, if if a young girl came to me in the office and I was a senior woman in, in the office uh, and they came to me and told me that that had happened to them, I would go on a rampage on their behalf. I would take that girl. You know, I, I know mm. Brittany Higgins said she didn't want to go to the police, she didn't want to, but I would just not have... Um, sat back. Sat back in a million years. I just I can't even comprehend. So so while there was a lot of um, 
you know, masculine energy. I mean, you only have to watch Question Time in there to know what the energy of that place is. So yeah, a lot um, of dick swinging. It's totally. And so the women sort of have to behave like that too. But I, I'm, I don't know, I just feel, I feel doubly disappointed in women who don't help other women in those scenarios. Charlie Pickering wasn't too surprised by the story either, and he offered a reason why. I didn't know this until the Brittany Higgins saga occurred, and it's only just being remedied now. Parliament House was literally one of only two workplaces not subject to sexual harassment laws in this country. What an incredible level of hypocrisy that the place that passes sexual harassment laws that everyone has to abide by, they didn't apply those laws to themselves. They said that they were above the law. Where is this at in legislation? Yeah, it was written into sexual harassment law that judges and politicians are exempt from sexual harassment laws. It's weird. Yeah, it's fucking weird as shit. It's almost like the fix was in. Like, but that's what I mean. Like, everything I know about Canberra is that it's, it has been skewed against women, obviously, since the beginning, but it has not. We've had a female prime minister. We've had a female deputy leader of the coalition. But it's a long way from being a fair and equal workplace between men and women. The number of women of really high calibre that have quit politics citing the bullying that women receive in Canberra. It's like women of incredible calibre have left politics because fucking why would you bother? I just think the the big, I mean, the revelation for me was the strength of Brittany Higgins to say, do you know what? I'm not going to be intimidated from calling all this to account. I appreciate that your personal view is that you weren't surprised. And I think that's possibly a symptom of the fact of the TV show that we make and that we're, we're, you know, we're across politics, we're across the behaviour of politicians. and Yeah, a lot of that is stories I'd been told by people in Canberra mm. but it's about politicians that, and people go, well, why don't you say it on TV? Because I'd lose my fucking house is why. We have defamation rules that can't say, I heard this politician gropes women at every single meeting of X party mm. and I've heard that about a number of people in Canberra but I can't go on air and say that. A, I'm not a fucking journalist, I'm a comedian. Mm. B, you actually just can't go on air in this country and say that. I was reflecting on it. I, I think this will ring true for you is that when I was in year six, they take you to Canberra on a, <laughs> like an excursion. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you're, you're obviously bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when you go there and, and it's presented as this sort of hallowed building with it's the bastion of democracy, obviously. It's the, in some ways, the generator of democracy but it's also like a place where they talk about integrity and decency and you know altruism and all sorts of things that that we say are our values so it's still i think even though i went there when i was 12 it is still to me a little bit surprising that it's that bad mm. it's funny because you bring up your school experience traveling there and it might just be my exposure to it as an adult and I've had repeated it. I've been to Canberra for various things. I've been to Parliament for various mm. things over the years and a school camp is the best way I could imagine Canberra being described and it is a whole bunch of people away from their families carrying on like fucking pork chops <laughs> and it is a giant school camp and I, and, and I... 
you know, I've been there to do the, you do a program launch for the ABC once a year and basically go, see, we do good stuff. Can you please keep giving us money? And politicians are there and all their staffers all having drinks with, hobnobbing with ABC personalities and then shuffling off to another giant dinner funded by Telstra where they were drinking and eating. And then there was another drinks after that. They come from a drinks before that. It's a big fucking party most of the time. And this isn't what you see and no one sees this. I wasn't surprised at all. And um, what does surprise me at this point when we record this is the fact that the government are still trying to slow roll the investigation and the information about what happened to Brittany Higgins. Jamila Rizvi is a former Labor Party staffer. I was shocked, but I was not surprised. Jamila came away from her Canberra days with first-hand experience of harassment. I first started working in Parliament House. I'd just turned 22. And I don't think a lot of inappropriate behaviour was something I realised was inappropriate at the time. Right. And I think part of that was just being young and not having worked anywhere full-time before. You know, I'd been a waitress a couple of years earlier, so the knowledge of Parliament and what was and wasn't okay about how workplaces operate wasn't really something I was abreast of. So I think part of it was sort of youth and naivety and then part of it was, well, everyone was behaving like this was normal, so I assumed it was. Um, And it's really only been in retrospect that I've realised some things were inappropriate and so they don't all necessarily come to the top of my mind because for me, very fortunately, I didn't experience enormous trauma, but I do think I experienced sexual harassment on a handful of occasions. What would be an example? Um, So I remember one uh, night we were were away. There was a bunch of ministerial and prime ministerial staff. We were all away for an event and um, the night before the event we were at the hotel um, and a bunch of the staff were at sort of at the hotel bar and um, it was mostly a group of men and there were, I think there were maybe three women and sort of night went on and less and less people are at the bar um, but I was young and cool then so I was still there rather than in bed. <laughs> um, and I remember a lot of the night I'd been talking to one uh, sort of senior older bloke and when he got up to leave he... Um, I realised he'd left, as he was leaving, I realised he'd left his like little hotel swipey key on the coffee table in front of of where he and I had been sitting. And so I picked it up and went, oh, you're forgetting something and kind of, you know, waved it above my head. Um, And he turned around and he came over and he said in sort of like this faux whisper, but very much loud enough for everyone to hear, it was something like you're so naive it's delicious or you're so naive it's delectable or something like Mm. that. That was meant for you. Right. And everyone laughed. Like, I, I, and I almost remember the laughter more than I remember what he said. Like, everyone was laughing at me. And the thing I look back on and, and sort of have toyed with the most is not that he was clearly a dickhead and behaving terribly to a young, naive new staffer and really inappropriately, but my reaction in the moment was 
to be embarrassed. And I was embarrassed afterwards. I was I wasn't up in the hotel room that night going to sleep thinking, what an asshole. Mm. I was going to sleep thinking, oh, I should have said this or I should have done this. Like how could I have been cooler mm. and responded in a way that was, you know, smarter. So I don't think I even thought about it as inappropriate from him. I, I was more just frustrated at myself. So was your boss at the time in a position to do anything about it or did you mention it or? Didn't tell. They didn't know. They didn't tell anyone? Yeah. No. Why is that? It, it, as I said, it, I don't think it occurred to me that there was anything to tell. Right. And that feels really stupid saying it now. And I think, um, you know, it's a reflection of how standards changed and how, how our awareness has changed. Mm. Um, I remember reading a, a American Cosmopolitan survey about five years ago when I was doing some research for a book and um, it talked about, it asked it asked women how many of them had experienced sexual harassment at work and mm. it was about 25%. And then it went through a list of things. How many have received an inappropriate text from a boss? How many people have, you know, and mm. it went through all these individual things and then the total number was 84%. Right. It's just that most of the respondents didn't know that it was sexual harassment or didn't know to call it that or hadn't thought about it in that light. So whilst those stats are alarming, for Abby Chatfield, it's a problem so ingrained that it's a disturbingly commonplace story within her friendship group. I mean, I've been sexually assaulted, but so have, I would say, most women that I know. I don't really talk about me getting sexually assaulted. That's something that I don't, I have never really spoken about publicly, me, like, being sexually assaulted. Right. And the times that I have. So it's happened more than once? Yeah, it's varying degrees. Jesus. Yeah, but I think most women have... <laughs> Most women that I know have had something um, a bit a bit off centre. So then there's a with the Brittany Higgins thing. I think what happens when stories like that break is we talk about it with our girlfriends. We get collectively triggered. We speak about it with our male friends in private. And I spoke on the podcast about this. Is a lot of men speak about it in private with their girlfriends, like after sex or like like um, you know. Sorry, in, like, speak about what? Sorry sexual assault, like they'll be like, yeah, baby, it's like it's fucked up. But they don't speak about it publicly at all. Like when all this breaks, all my girlfriends are posting about it and the men in my life are posting fucking TikToks about sending it on a weekend. And it's like then we all get collectively triggered and it's 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 upsetting because they uh, the men in my life, they know about my sexual assault or like my friend's sexual assault or like their ex-girlfriends have been or whatever. Like we, we speak about it, right? But they only speak about it in private with women, not with men. Why don't you speak about the sexual assault publicly given that you've talked about? Everything else. Yeah. Uh, because one of the people that did something really fucked, um, he is a very aggressive, angry person. And I would be scared to say anything publicly about him. Um, the other has a lot of money and could come for me. And another one um, was when I was uh, a bit younger and people would say that I was lying. Fuck. I mean, in some ways, even just saying that just shows the prison mm. that so many women would be in. Yeah, so many. And this is the thing. People say, what, you know, when 
when these stories come out, people say, why didn't you say anything at the time? Like, and people use me as an example. Like, well, you would. Like men, again, we are not, not, well, I, I haven't and I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the risk of being all Jenny Morrison about it, I've, I, like, I think I've been just hearing again just about the magnitude or the frequency of it. You know, I've got two girls, like, and it's just like, mm. so the stats aren't good. Mm. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I think though it is, I think it honestly is getting better with social media, um, the prevalence of, um, these issues being spoken about on social media and people like Brittany Higgins coming forward. I mean, even the other day, my friend was, uh, on the phone to me and he heard outside this guy like yelling, he was like, oh, there's like some like 19 year olds outside my apartment. And he was like listening to the conversation. And one of them was yelling at the other one about being inappropriate with a girl and saying like, she said no, like having a go at him for not getting consent. And I don't think that ever would have happened even when I was in high school 10 years ago. So I hope that it is actually improving. We're teaching our 13 year old boy about it at the moment. And Mm. um, we never got taught about it Mm. when I was 13. I mean, you didn't even know the word consent until you were in your 20s. Yeah, I mean, it's good progress. Yeah, so I think that there is progress and I think that um, it's also rapidly becoming more and more spoken about. Um, But I think uh, something that isn't getting better is that idea of, well, why didn't she report it or why didn't she talk about it? Like you said, like I talk about everything and Mm. I will probably never speak about specifics about those incidents um, except in, in private with... Uh, my friends who know and, yeah, not even, like, my sister really knows. Yeah, right. Mm. Consent may seem like a basic and necessary part of human relationships, but the lesson seems to be unlearned by some. The government this year made a bizarre milkshake advert, an ill-advised attempt to teach young people about consent. Do you want to try my milkshake? Yes, I do. Well, drink it. Drink it all. What are you doing? Drink it all. It's a teaching job Charlie Pickering thinks is better off done at home. My six-and-a-half-year-old, we have already started talking to him about consent and we do it in relation to him. And and I think that's actually important from a safety point of view to to be like, you know, so we like, uh, if we're washing him in the bath, we ask before we wash any private areas. Mm -hmm. And he's always like, you don't have to ask. And we go, no, grown-ups have to ask before they touch those private areas. Mm. And you can say no. And if anyone ever tells you that you can't say no, then you have to come and tell us straight away and have that open communication. Because the fact is it's a threat in the world, like parents, mm. like adults towards children. Um, and so what what has been so destructive is when children have felt that they have to keep those that a secret and, and have become shameful for them. Um, so we would always want, if, if God forbid that should happen to one of our sons, that they come straight to us and go, this happened to me and we sort it out. And that they know that they've done nothing wrong. And so that to me is the beginning of a conversation about consent. But we also have the conversation with the six-year-old about how he treats other people and other people's bodies. And it's funny because sometimes we'll be wrestling or something and he'll be too rough or we'll wrestle with um, with Sarah and and be too rough, and she'll go, no, or she'll say, stop doing that, and he'll keep doing that, and that's an opportunity to talk about consent. And so it doesn't have to, a conversation about consent doesn't have to be sexual, but you can get a kid to understand consent so that when you have conversations about sex down the track, 
you already know what consent is. Mm. And that is, if it's your body, you get to say if someone does or does not do something. Mm -hmm. You get to choose whether you participate with your body. That's not a sexual conversation. What's the difference, though, between like, I mean, there are some decisions you have to make on your kid's behalf about what you do with their body. Mm. Braces. (laughs) Yeah. Vaccinations, like, you know. Correct. They seem like necessary health-based things to me. Circumcision? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, both of my boys are circumcised. I'm circumcised culturally as a Jew. That's part of it. But you, it's Abraham's covenant with, with God <laughs> historically. But it, that that's part of the deal. And I, I guess what I brought to that was the fact that I know personally that I have no issue with being circumcised, and there was no point in my childhood that I felt that I was harmed or abused or anything like that. So, yeah. so I brought some reality to the table about that, and, and I find. With almost infinitesimally small exception, most Jewish males will will share that. Almost circumcised men would absolutely share that feeling. Sexism is, of course, everywhere, in all workplaces, as Sam Armitage knows, having spent a life working in media. I asked her about how structural unfairness affects you at a personal level. I've always been quite, like, obviously the type of girl who's able to stick up for myself but I, um, and not take too much crap. But there, you know, there is, you know, it's a very male, no, no I'll take that back. It's, there's a lot of, uh, there's not many women in management positions. So there's a lot of women in the building but not a lot of in management positions. So, um we, I've, I've spoken about this a lot in the past and with, with I go and talk to girls at schools, you know, a lot of women in the media, a lot of ge- female journalists go into their masculine in order to survive that. I think that's changing a bit now, but my experience as a younger journo is that um, women become very aggressive. They take on a lot of male traits in order to survive that. And one of the things I always try to do is really retain my femininity retain mm. my vulnerability, you know, as you can see through my later years in my career, you know, my I've really tried to hold on to my empathy. It's interesting saying all that, like, because a lot of the traits that you're talking about of the, on the male side are like aggression, lack of empathy. Mm. I mean, do you think men are like that? I think classically, like in in nature, in uh, you know, I think men, I think men days these days, this, these next generations of men coming through are far more in touch with with their, you know. Um, Softer side. Softer side. I don't want to say feminist side, but, you know, it's getting a bit more balanced to it. But, I mean, TV, the you know, when I started in 98, um, the 90s, which were basically just a hangover of the 80s, it was just atrocious. It was just so masculine and, and all those worst male characteristics. And a lot of women go into that part of themselves to cope with it, to survive it. And I I saw that quite early on and I just made a conscientious effort even as a young girl in her 20s not to do that. It wasn't me. I've always been a girl's girl. I have been vulnerable. I have been self-deprecating. Um, I have been creative. Uh, and, I, I, you know, sometimes you get a bit lost along the way, but I've tried to really hold on to that. So what advice do you give? That's really interesting. What advice do you give those girls? Well, I just say don't, you know, don't try because if you go into an industry that is uh, run by men or or a masculine sort of energy like news requires, um, be true to yourself because there is, there, you know, like a, there, there were a lot of 
tough, tough women in TV, let me tell you, and I was not the toughest and yet I've done quite well despite that because I think uh, I was put into jobs where where a bit of vulnerability was valued. Um, so you don't necessarily have to behave like a man to cut it in these masculine industries. Uh, in saying that, it's a different world now. It's a completely different world as to when I grew up in TV. Um, so I think there is more opportunity. And But, you know, I still think women, um, you know, it's, it's rare to find a, a, a lot of empathy in behind the scenes in TV, really. And if you are a person who has that in spades, you know, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't always mean that you're tough enough to tough it out. Do you know what I mean? Am I explaining yeah. that very well? You know, like what, what the type of person you are, if you have empathy, means that you're not necessarily tough enough to make it in TV. Abby Chatfield, now very much her own workforce, had her own stories of inequality in her previous work life in the real estate industry. Commercial real estate is disgusting for sexism. Um, and I think it would was it would be like little comments and like, you know, put on some lippy doll and me, knowing that I got paid $30,000 less than my male counterparts, me having to, like, my title was... Um, Analyst slash admin, despite the fact that I had an I had a degree in property economics, and another guy who didn't was just an analyst, right? Didn't have to do any admin, but I was right. I had two jobs, but I got paid thirty grand less. That's so tough. it's like I get paid less, do two jobs, and also get have to do things like set up morning teas, um, right. and get told to wear lipstick to meetings, like shit like that. Like that's infuriating. It's fucking infuriating. Like blatant. Sexism. There's people saying the N word in the office, and then when I then when I would say stop, and I cried one time because I begged them. To, um, they'd say she's being emotional. She's got to appear, and it's like like it's that level of like. I remember one time I had my like, performance review for work, and I wanted a twenty thousand dollar pay rise because I knew what the other boys were getting, and like they had the other guys, and because they were my friends, right? Because they were around my age, and we were friends. They would tell me what they would earn because they'd be like, "You deserve to earn what we're earning." Mm. Um, allies, true allies. Um, and they, I knew they were on $30,000 more than I was. And they'd been kind of out of uni for a couple of years. And I just finished my degree. So like, oh, I'll get $20,000 more. And I had my performance review. And first of all, one of the, one of the criteria of ticking off how my review was, was my presentation. And my boss said, well, some days you don't wear makeup. So, um, really? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah, you know, but overall pretty good. And I was like, yeah. Overall pretty good. And I was like, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> like what the fuck? Anyway, and then in this meeting, in this meeting I was like, um, he was like, you know, because they wouldn't give me, this is the issue as well with this industry, like they wouldn't ever want to teach me anything. And they, one time at a lunch they said that they don't want me to learn what they've learned because I'll steal their contacts because I'm young and pretty. Like, Okay. You okay, bitch. also maybe because I'm smart, I'm a fucking bitch. And um, they, so they wouldn't really like, teach me anything. It was fucking awful. Um, anyway, I got my $20,000 pay rise because I kept complaining about it. But it's like shit like that of being continually underestimated and told that you're assumed that you're dumb until proven otherwise, whereas I feel like men in these industries are assumed they know everything unless proven otherwise. And even if it is proven otherwise, it's some woman's fault. Like it's that I haven't given the right documents, so I haven't explained to them or. Yeah, I mean, we can be dumb for ages before anyone notices. Says anything, right? But women have to be above and beyond. You know what I mean? Fairness is the principle on which most sports are based. We scream at the television when rules go unenforced by an umpire or referee. 
We hate drug cheats. We banish match fixers and we decry thugs. On the other hand, one small act of sportsmanship can warm our hearts, as we saw countless times at the Tokyo Olympics. But when it comes to fairness in sport, Tony Armstrong thinks we have a fair way to go. One of your idols before you started playing footy was Adam Goods. Yeah. And then you ended up playing yeah, that was... um, with Goodsy. Mm. How did you feel about him knocking back the Hall of Fame? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Completely respect it. Disappointed that he's not in it, but he doesn't. And I'm just disappointed because, like, maybe in 150 years, people will look and not realize the impact he has. Maybe. I don't know. But far out. Do you think that anyone would even not consider him a Hall of Famer? No, I mean, he's obviously one of the greats. I mean, what I'm interested in, I think, is like, can you give me an illustration of what level of pain he and other Indigenous footballers or Indigenous people would have felt from what happened to him? Have you ever heard about how the queer community felt when the same-sex marriage plebiscite was happening? Have you have you heard them say it was like our identity was on trial mm. publicly? That was what it was like from an Indigenous perspective. We're watching like Aboriginal Superman, mm. essentially. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like we're watching him get gaslit by a whole country. Yeah. And then we're, and then and then one of the one of the other frustrating things was we're not seeing any black voices being amplified within the media to even just and and this is the lowest hanging fruit like just to give a counter just to give a counter argument to all the stuff that is being said about Goodsy and being said essentially about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people it was like it was it sucked I. I hated it so much. And obviously, you know, people who are in my position had a quite a a different experience in that we actually knew him. Mm. Um, so we kind of had this, like, I guess. How did that change it? I think because not not only are you are you looking at someone you revere, you actually know what kind of a person they mm-hmm. are away from everything. Being, we, being Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's, when he's Clark Kent. Um, and yet, like, just the nicest, most caring, lovely person you've ever met. So regardless, if it was about race, you would hate to see that happen. And then it was about race and, we're, and, and we live in a place that is so far off the mark still, I think, from, I guess, a race relations point of view. He got basically run out of, run out of the game mm. and essentially the public eye. You're like, far out. This is someone who has the Go Foundation with Mikio, um, which does amazing work in Indigenous education space. He employs a whole bunch of black fellas through his businesses. He won two brown loads. So, like, professionally amazing, philanthropic, mm. good family man. Mm. What else do you have to do for white Australia to go, okay, man, like... You're, you're- you, we're, with, we're with you. You get to talk now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like. Yeah. So one of the people that didn't help in that whole situation was Eddie Maguire, and you played for Collingwood, mm-hmm. who this year, obviously there was a report that came out about... Too bad a report, yeah. The, 
yeah, systemic racism effectively mm. through the Collingwood Football Club. Did you see it? I never experienced it firsthand, um, uh, which was racism or like like blatant racism. Um, I think they are a perfect like micro example or a micro cosm of Australia. Like Australia is completely reflected in the Collingwood Footy Club, and to to give I guess an example of. I think something that ties a knot on that really nicely is that Australia has all of, like, if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander here, you've got basically every every key indicator towards the, the idea of success stacked against you. Like, you're behind the eight ball in all of them. Career, health, education, life expectancy. Like, yep. like you're just getting to the start line, you're doing well. Yet, Australia, when we talk about what we're like as a country, no, we're not systemically racist. No, we've got a really good relationship with our First Nations people, blah, blah, blah. You know, this kind of rhetoric. Then when you get to Collingwood, it's like you've literally had scientists, social scientists and, you know, people who are geniuses in this field look into your football club, your business, your country, and say, hey, like, here's a report that says why you're racist. And in that, there are statistics and examples and all this kind of stuff in it. And they basically came out immediately after that. Nah. And I think... Or worse than that, they said it was a proud day. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you can imagine any number of prime ministers coming out and saying that kind of stuff (laughs) off the back of, you know, a report that says, yeah you know, youth incarceration of Indigenous people is is at a at the worst rate in the world. Don't hold me on that stat. That's just a hypothetical. Mm. And then you can just imagine our Prime Ministers saying that. Like, it, it, I, when I saw it all happening, I was going, well, they're just a reflection of the country. Mm. And, yeah, it's like, for me, it, it, it wasn't all the really overt stuff. It was just the kind of stuff where you're not trying to inject Aboriginality into into the place at all until, oh, shit, it's it's a Doug Nichols around. Who, where, who do we, what do we... Who do we know that's black? What do we, yeah, what can we, um, should we actually don't know any, you know, like... What's funny, because I, Briggs was on this podcast last time, um, his view is that the Sir Doug Nichols round and a lot of the stuff the AFL do is quite tokenistic. I find a lot of it performative too. There's like two parts to it, right? It's like, okay, sure, you do need to do the performative stuff because that's that's it's like an advertising campaign, right? That's like you're above the line. These are your billboards. And then, you know, Joe Public driving past goes, what's that? I'm going to follow the link. I'll go, for, I'll go find out what's actually going on. So that's, so I see the performative stuff as you're above the line, but then it's like, okay, well... How do we actually have systemic positive change? What's behind that? What are these performative ads doing? For the community? For the community or to actually make the AFL environment a better place for um, Indigenous players. And one of the things I'm really frustrated about is last year, for instance, when COVID happened, um, obviously 
it affected all, like every industry, um, except Amazon. Um, and I don't think even God could beat Amazon. Yeah, I think he, he is God, isn't he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that you? Yeah. <laughs> Did you have him on? Is that who? Is that, is that, yeah, is that, is that, is that who said he was God? <laughs> yeah, that'd be a huge get. <laughs> a massive get. <laughs> Just talking to Jeff from space. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you coming? <laughs> uh, but like some of the first cuts at all the AFL clubs were cuts to the Indigenous programming. So the Indigenous liaison officers that have been fought tooth and nail to get onto lists to make places culturally safe for... So it's still seen as a luxury. Still a luxury rather than... Mm. Um, Your welfare is the white person's luxury. Even then, football media. You know, if we look at the at the over-indexing from a player percentage, 12% of AFL and AFLW, so roughly 12%. I don't know how many media jobs there are, but I tell you what, there's not 12%. Uh, like, like, we aren't seeing... Mm the exact same, I guess, percentage numbers. And I think for everything, it all needs to be reflective of, of its constituents, right? Because then everyone's got, I guess, their their equal their their equal share of how things are going to progress and how things are represented. Exactly. Representation matters, and Jamila struggled with aspects of her identity in the last year. You recently wrote in an article, and this was in relation to the obviously horrific situation of COVID in India. You started the article by saying, we're paying the price of behaving like white Australians for so long, our whole lives really. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Yeah, I upset a lot of people with that article. (laughs) Um, So I'm an Indian Australian. My father was born in India um, and I wrote that article uh, about two weeks after finding out that my great aunt had died of COVID in India, all my Indian family who I'm in touch with have had COVID now. Um, the situation there is awful. And at the height of what was happening in India, I was so upset and in a lot of pain and quite distraught every day. And a lot of my Indian Australian friends were the same. We were waking up hurting. Um, because we were waiting to hear from family and friends and we were watching the news obsessively, but nobody around us was and no one was sort of asking, how are you? Are you guys okay? Mm. Because a lot of my Indian Australian friends, we can pass as white. Um, Not all of them, but a lot of us can pass as white. You might not necessarily know unless you go, oh, that's an unusual name or... um, uh, or if you've met one of our parents or whatever it might be. And so I wanted to reflect on on that reality of there are huge privileges uh, for uh, Australians of Ind- Indian descent who don't have dark skin. There are huge privileges because we don't experience racism in the same way and to the same degree. Absolutely not. But sometimes there are moments when you're like, I just want someone to recognise my Indianness right now because it's, it's hurting and I'm feeling extra connected to the place I'm from right now because I'm worried about people. Um, I suppose that's what I was trying to capture. And why did people get so angry? I got a bunch of 
tweets and emails and the like suggesting that I was picking and choosing when to feel Indian. Oh, right. Um, there might be some truth in that. There might be some truth in that, absolutely. But I would argue I always feel the same amount Indian, whatever amount that is. <laughs> uh, it's just that other people choose to recognise it or not. What I was expecting you to say was that people were angry about putting the blame on white Australia, that people like white Australians feel like, well, it's not our fault that there's COVID in India. No, I suppose my, my reflection was on Indian Australians like myself who have benefited, to be honest, we have benefited from fitting in and being white enough. And all of a sudden this day came along where it didn't feel like a benefit anymore. It, it felt really uncomfortable and really painful. Fairness and equality doesn't mean literally treating everyone the same. It's about access, opportunity and respect. I tried a possibly daft theory out with Tony Armstrong. This might be ignorant, but it feels like equality would be found when no one cares anymore about whether someone's white, Indigenous, black, Asian, right? But that might be naive because we're all proud of who we are and Mm. to a degree, depending Mm. depending on who we are. Um, Speak for yourself, (laughs) mate. (laughs) We got some ghosts. Our our team's got some ghosts. But... um, but, um, A, do we want to get to that position or do do, do you want to be in that position where no one cares anymore? And do you genuinely think, would there always be a gulf between you and I because I'm white and you're black? I So I think in terms of the way you and I think, in terms of uh, our interests, um, our... You know, our humour, probably our values as well, I would say they would be, you know, in terms of uh, Venn diagrams, quite quite concentric. But then the way, I reckon the way, and this is, again, this is just my, my, my guess, tell me if I'm wrong, I don't reckon you, you would see police and instantly feel threatened. Definitely not. I see them and I'm straight away on edge. Right. Um, but then also the way people perceive me, there's a gulf between the way people would perceive you, despite everything that's going on in between our ears. So how do people perceive you? So, well, I'm tall. Oh, oh, no. Attractive. Yeah. <laughs> the timbre of my voice yeah. is delicious. <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Apart from, uh, of course, uh, the the physical stuff, the sexy stuff. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. In all seriousness, it's like there are inbuilt prejudices there because I'm a black man. Um, but I, what I'm interested in is how do you experience it? So, like, you've, you said the police thing, but when you go to a job interview or... So, okay, so um, I get I get profiled all the time, a lot by the police, um, and it might be something as as little as... Um, how often are you rabbit, robbing banks? <laughs> you seem to have a lot of Well, deals. it's actually the wanted posters. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, I yeah, I am a mobster. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hard crim. Yeah, so I'm not doing myself any favors because I'm getting profiled all the fucking time. <laughs> yeah, but like, so I get I get police profiled. I get racist comments 
a fair bit, but then it's also really subtle stuff. So back when I used to catch public transport pre-COVID, for instance, I would often be on trams, chock-a-block trams, and I don't look intimidating at all. I've got linguini arms. I'm skinny. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm not this hulking mm. big guy. And people just, you know. If anything, people would want to rub up again. <laughs> yeah, they go, oh, geez, he's a walkover. You know, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, even just subtle things, you know, you'd see people look at, look at a spare seat in a tram that's packed next to me. I'd, like, look up, smile, nothing. Or, like, you know, the little grab of, like, purses when you sit down. You know, it's all of these little microaggressions. I don't know if it makes you feel any better, but no one sits next to me either. Well, that's just a smell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the way that the golf will always be that the world... that The, the way, way I'm perceived in the world... And the way you perceive the world as a result is exactly, always different. Exactly, because then I'm once bitten, twice shy. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, I'll go into certain situations, you know, feeling... Maybe not necessarily uneasy, but just with my guard up. Someone who has their guard up a bit is Tommy Little, but he feels strongly about equality and is acutely aware of moments where there is a power imbalance. A dude yelled at a cyclist on the way here when I was driving in here from a from a car. Mm-hmm. That makes me angry because it sums up what I think is a heaps bigger problem, which is a cyclist, regardless whether you love or hate him, whatever, we have to be adults at some point and realise that person is trying to do something that's good for the environment and they're having a lesser impact than assholes like me who are driving around in their car. and In their semi-trailer. Yeah. And this was, this was a dude in a, big, in a big truck too. And like also the cyclist is vulnerable in the sense of if those two things hit each other, the cyclist is going to be really hurt and the dude in the car is not going to be hurt at all. And yet he thinks it's okay to yell at. And there was a chick on it. Anyway. Yeah. Tell me. Well, just that that attitude, it's the same thing when people are rude to waiters or people are dismissive of people in the street asking for money. It's that real punching down thing of a higher status someone being an asshole to someone, you know, that's in a more vulnerable position and that shit makes me angry. Same. When you see those things, do you, do you get involved? Uh, yes, I would get involved, yeah. That does yeah. not surprise me. But it, the one thing I do find interesting is because you don't love confrontation. no. No, I no, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no. The, the irony of that question is it's quite a confronting. Question. <laughs> well, that hard-hitting question came out of nowhere. It's not ready for that. So, because it, I reckon you'd be the first person to arc up if a waiter was, if someone was being rude to a waiter. Absolutely, I think it's because it doesn't involve me. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think so. Even if in, in that same restaurant scenario, if a waiter was really rude to me, or even if they man, if they gave me the wrong meal, I don't think I would even say something. I think I would go. I, I must have ordered the soup. Like I'll I'll eat it. But yeah, you're right. But then if there's someone else being rude, well, I'll absolutely call them out for it. You do um, a lot of work with the homeless. Mm-hmm. What drew you to that? Um. I think probably, probably just, I, I lived in Fitzroy and um, it's obviously an affluent area, but also the home is quite visible in terms of, oh, you walk down Brunswick Street and you will get asked for money, you know, five or six times and it 
eventually means for someone like me who stops and has, has a chat, um, you start realizing how complex the problem is. And so then it just became a goal to start supporting people who were trying to make a difference. What's, it, what's so complicated about it? Explain to me. Um, because it's not the fact that these people don't have money or homes. It's that there's a raft of issues that are combining. I mean, if it was literally money, uh, the problem could be solved so easily. It's because of a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, for women, it's so often domestic violence. Mm. Like so often I will speak to women on the street and it'll be some piece of shit dude who's isolated them from there, cut them off from all their networks, beaten them up and then left them. Mm-hmm. And it can happen so quickly and then you're out on the street. Man, I'm, I'm friends with a woman who I, I met her on the street and she cared for her mum for her last five years of her life um, as a full-time carer. Mm-hmm. And then her mum passed away and they were just renting an apartment and exactly the same thing happened. So she didn't get left any money or anything and she'd just been working unpaid as a carer, like doing, you know, being an amazing person. Mm. But then finds herself with nothing, meets this dude, and same same thing happened. Cut to, you know, six months later and she's out on the street and has no, you know, no confidence and it's, yeah, it's just real easy. Real easy to happen. Every time I see you, every time I've been walking down the street with you, mm. you give money to people. We start, I remember, literally every single time we've mm. been down someone, you give money to people. I know I know of other stories, which I won't say now, where you've bought things for people and given them. So you obviously that's, feel... That's bit me on the ass once. The um, I was on a date once and uh, I, there was a, a homeless guy that I know and... Um, I said, hey, and gave him money. And she said, uh, she said to me, that's lovely. And I said, uh, I said, I always give, uh, <laughs> I always give whatever I've got in my wallet. Mm. And she goes, oh, that's really nice. And it just so happened that I, I just got money out. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was almost like a, a pied pipe. It was like I'd shouted from the roof. And like five homeless people just appeared. <laughs> and I was like 300 bucks down in about 30 seconds. And I had to pretend like it was fine. I was like, eh, no, it's good. <laughs> Next time on Brains Trust, we're talking fame, both its benefits and its pitfalls. I got announced as the sport anchor on News Breakfast for the ABC. Part of that has been a even bigger kind of groundswell of people online just saying that like they find me really attractive but it kind no no but no but it kind of changed like like the tonality of it changed a little bit got a bit predatory rather than complimenty especially when the majority of mums age (laughs) and they don't give a shit and they're all white and there's a sense of kind of fetish about it as well it's a bit fucking cooked a bit too far. Brains Trust is presented by me, Chris Walker, produced by Chris Marsh, Carly Humby and Sam Kavanagh. See you next time as we continue the conversation with our Brains Trust. Listener.